read the entire Psalm, not that long, 11 verses or so, and then read the line. That's just 11 verses, not 11 verses or so. Uh, actually, 11 verses. All right, let me just read. Psalm chapter 6, 16, a victim of David, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord to give me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. And you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your holy ones be corruption. You make known to me the path of life. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And this is God's holy word. And so this psalm begins like many psalms. It is a cry for help. Preserve me, O God. Help me. Protect me. Keep me. It is a cry of protection. And of course, that is, as I said, is not unique to the psalms. And so we are not surprised to see this one beginning with a cry for help. Here's what sets this psalm for preservation apart from some of the other cries for protection by the psalmist. Is that this psalm, the cry for preservation in this psalm, is that it is a cry for preservation throughout the life of the psalmist, and then it continues as a cry for protection in death. In other words, protect me in this life, and when I die, don't abandon me. Protect me now, protect me then. So, oftentimes when we think of protection, we're just saying, we want to be saved from some sort of temporal enemy, some material threat. And certainly that's a reality in this psalm, but David goes even further. He says, I don't only want you to protect me now, I want you to protect me. Don't abandon me when I die. So that's a, a bit of a, a unique aspect of this particular psalm. It is a protection in this life and a protection in the life to come. But it's not only that, it goes a little bit further. Because the psalmist is not simply saying, preserve me from danger, but preserve me to you. You get that preserve me from danger, but preserve me to you. In other words, the psalmist is not interested only in God's removal of the threat. He is interested in God's abiding protection, God's abiding presence. In other words, David is not interested in God's protection absent God's presence. I want you to protect me, and sometimes, you know, we might be guilty. Oh, protect me from this thing, and then when you're done, protect me from whatever threat or whatever difficulty I'm facing. And then you can go about and do whatever you want, God. You can leave me alone after that. I'm good. I just need help now. And then when we're done, you do whatever God thing you need to do. David's not there. He's saying, I don't want protection absent your presence. So protect me. In fact, it is being in your presence where I'm going to find the sustaining protection. So preserve me, oh God, but don't abandon me when you're done. I, want you. I don't want just your protection. I want you. David's not interested in God's protection absent God's presence. So here's the point that I hope to drive at today is that we are preserved by God for God, and therefore we should rejoice. We are protected by God for God. We are preserved by God for God. And so the psalm begins with this, this cry for preservation, preserving. And oh, by the way, a nickname of David, just because somebody said, what is that? What do you mean? So let me just explain what a nickname is. And it's real simple. We don't know. So then the psalm begins with preserve me, oh God, because we don't know. So, um, but what we do know is David cries out, help me, protect me, preserve me. We don't really know the threat that David is dealing with at this point. There's nothing that prompts this heartfelt cry. Um, it comes at a time where probably, I mean, David is running and hiding from Saul, so probably that could be what's going on. But he doesn't tell us, so I won't make a point that he's running from Saul. He's just saying there is this unknown threat protecting me. Maybe it's physical refuge. Um, maybe it's from uh, slander, people telling lies about me. Perhaps there's an illness. Or perhaps all of those things just preserve me. Preserve me from my enemies. Preserve me from lies. Preserve me from illness. Preserve me from myself. Preserve me from my own self-deception. Preserve me from my life. Preserve me, O Lord. And while it is probably not the main point of the psalm, I don't think we can avoid looking at where David's hope for preservation lies. His hope for preservation lies in God. But notice the threefold names of God that are on David's lips as he pens this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, and you'll notice many of your Bibles, and Lord, each letter is capitalized. How many have all your letters of the Lord capitalized? That's important to recognize. For you are my Lord, and you'll notice not all the letters are capitalized. All right? That tells us there's a shift in the Hebrew word. All right? So, 
So the reader is quickly alerted that David's help, that is his hope, is not in those who might be loyal to his cause. It is not found in military uh, acumen. His hope is not found, perhaps, in foreign allies. His hope is not found in great counsel. He understands that preservation is going to come from God himself. And you see this. He's grounding his hope, his confidence and preservation in the Lord. And so let's just briefly look at these three terms that David uses for God. And the first one is just God. And this is the most basic form of God that we have in the Bible. It's the word El, E-L. And some of you may be familiar with the term Elohim. That's just a plural form. But it, is, it, it often speaks of God in his almighty power. He is the creator God, the God who fashions the universe with the command, let there be. This is the God that David is relying upon. He's calling out to the God who fashions the universe by simply speaking it, who is almighty, all-powerful, for whom there is no weakness whatsoever. God preserve me. And then he references Lord in all capital letters. This means that this indicates to the English reader that um, he is referring to Yahweh. This is the covenant name for God. You remember when uh, Moses was before the burning bush in the wilderness and he goes over and God speaks to him from the burning bush and he says, well, if I go to Egypt, who am I going to say sent to me? Because they're going to say, well, but God sent you. The God of heaven said, I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. This is translated in our English Bible. This is capital O, capital, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is the covenant-making God. It is the God who elects the people and dwells in this. The interesting thing is God is the almighty creator of the universe. Yahweh is the God who dwells with his people. He makes a covenant with them. I will be your God and you will be my people. We will dwell in a covenant relationship. I'm not just the God far off in the heavens who makes stuff. I'm the God who enters into a covenant and a, a relationship with you. And then finally, uh, the next one, you are my Lord. This is the word that you may be familiar with, Adonai. Sometimes we see the song, praise Adonai. This is where that, that word means it. It really has to do with God as being the master of the boss. In other words, David submits to the one who creates and adopts. You are the Lord, I submit to you. You are the creator of God who establishes a covenant with his people. I bow before you. I am subject to you. I am not the boss. You are the boss. And so David grounds his confidence, a physical rescue in the Lord God Almighty. In you I take refuge. Now like this, he says, you are all my good. I have no good apart from you. James chapter 1. Verse 7. I think you have this up on. I think I have this verse. Do you have a slide for James 1 7? There it is. Look at that. Oh, 117, sorry. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to you. Every good gift comes from our God. I have no good apart from you. First Corinthians 4 7. We talked about this last week. What do you have that has not been given to you? Everything you have has come from a gracious God. And so, David, preserve me, O oh God. You are my Lord. I have nothing. No good apart from you. This is probably dealing more with material uh, or temporal good, not so much a moral good, though I guess it could uh, include that. Um, but it is a material good. Everything that I have, the land, the property, the, my children, my family, all of these good things, they come from you. I have nothing good apart from you. You understand that what do I have that has not been given to me? But I think we... Calvin, John Calvin rightly notes that this phrase also demonstrates that God derives no benefit or advantage from the psalmist. I think this is an important point. That is, I have no, I've not received anything good. Anything that I have has come from you. All my good, even if there is no good included in this idea, even that comes from you. And then, as Calvin rightly notes, this phrase demonstrates that God derives no benefit or advantage from the psalmist. In other words, whatever goodness I have received from God does not extend from any obligation or merit of my own. In other words, whatever I receive from God is not because God owes me anything. I do not have my blessings because God is indebted to me. It's not like I did something and now God says, well, I've got to kind of owe you, so let me give you a, a new house. We, by our own merit, do not bring God under any obligation. In other words, the goodness that he has received is just that. Goodness that has been received. It is grace. Whatever good I have has been bestowed upon you by your gracious mercies, not because of any merit that I have achieved which has obligated God to me. So God has not bestowed goodness upon him. Preserve me, O God, for you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints of the Lamb, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight and sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings. I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. I understand this is just an extension of this idea of God's goodness. And so, while we can extend no good to God, that would add to him, we can extend, extend God's goodness to one another. It is a very practical matter. Those who love the Lord will love the ones who love him. Those who love the Lord will love the ones who love him. 
This service is a very practical matter. As we gather together in a church, and we are a community of people, we are a covenant-bound community who have agreed to gather together um, and to support and to hold one another accountable as in, in a covenant relationship with one another, we are called as believers to love one another. And I hear people say, oh, well, I love Jesus, I just don't really like the church. I don't really like his people. It's like, I don't think you people want to even say that. But that is certainly no biblical principle. Does that mean that we never get angry at one another or upset one another or offend one another or hurt one another? Absolutely not. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we extend, and we are, you are God's goodness to me. And I pray that I'm an extension of God's goodness to you. Whatever good we have has come from God. And so while we don't extend to God any good from our own, we do extend goodness to his people. And so those who love the Lord will love the ones who love him. And then we see this goodness undefended. I separate myself from all those who reject you. Those who profane your name and have idols upon their lips have nothing to do with that. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour. I won't participate in their works of darkness. I won't even take their names upon my lips. I love the people of God, and I align myself with them, and I have nothing to do with the works of darkness. And those who participate in them, as Christians, we would see people as those who need the Lord, but we do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. And so we see this whole idea of God's goodness. Oh, Lord, preserve me. You are my good. You have given me goodness by um, putting me in a community of saints and separating me from those who are in rebellion, open, unrepentant rebellion against you. The psalm shifts down verse 5. We see the sufficiency of God. In fact, verses 5 to 8, listen to this. Lord, you are my chosen portion and my cup. So, and you hold my lot. Lord, you are my chosen portion. You are my cup. You are my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord. Let me just do 5 and 6 right now. This is a rather challenging, uh, it's rather challenging language. What do you mean the Lord is my chosen portion? He is my cup. He is my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. We should note that these verses express the language that is associated with the division of land in Canaan among the tribes. So remember, they come out where the book of Numbers and they're going to be going across the wilderness. They're not that yet. But their journey is to the land of promise, to the land of Canaan. When they get to the land of Canaan, and I think Sandra's in the back, but y'all are reading Judges, right, in, in uh, Friday Night Bible Study. And, and Judges, they divide up the land. They portion out the land. They divide it and allot it to various tribes. Here's what David is pointing out. He is, he is saying, listen, this is a striking reversal. In other words, the land has been apportioned to me, has been allotted to me. It is, my, it is the, the purpose, one of your purposes for me. But here's the thing. You, Lord, are my division. You're my allotment. You're my inheritance. You are my portion. And so, um, you are my portion. You are what has been allotted to me. You are my cup. You are my allotted lot. You are my destiny. You are my end. You are the goal for which I desire to attain. The supreme end of all of my endeavors. Material land. And allotted portions. That's one thing. But you, Lord, are my inheritance. You are the end for which I function. There is uh, no desire for preservation without God's presence. Preserve me. But you are everything. You have been allotted to me. I want you for my inheritance. I want you for my good. I want you for my allotment. So the desire for the Lord results in a despising, at least by comparison, of the riches and priorities afforded by the world. Sometimes I, I think about when we, when we talk about what happens after death, or we talk maybe at a funeral, or um, we think about, oh man, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be really glad to see so-and-so. Now I'm going to be reunited with my family. I'm gonna be, that's all good. What I find often sadly lacking is I'm going to be reunited with my great God and Savior, and I will see him face to face. In other words, I want heaven, whether God's there or not. I just want to be reunited with my friend. David is saying, listen, the inheritance only comes, it's only valuable if God is present. That's what I want. He's my inheritance. He's my presence. He's, he's my allotment. He's the end. You know, a whole lot of people who want heaven, whether God's there or not. David sounds a lot like Moses, doesn't he? I told Moses, listen, you guys go on. I'll send my angel with you. But I'm not going with you. Moses said, well, then I ain't going. Listen, it's all in. Either you go, or you just, or I'm not going. If you don't go, what use is there? We want your presence, God. An angel would be really cool. I got that offer. 
It's an angel with you wherever you go. So, oh, that's pretty cool. Moses and David are like going, no, no. It is God's presence. On the last day, when we leave our last breath and are escorted into glory, and when Christ comes and reestablishes a new heaven and a new earth, the great thing about the eternal state is not streets of gold or pearly gates or even our family members, as great as all of that may be. The thing that makes heaven heaven, the presence of God Almighty. Well, I pray that we would desire him above all things. This is where the psalmist is gone. And then he begins to praise God for the good. I bless the Lord. He gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, and I shall not be shaken. The good, verse 2, um, that is received by the psalmist is highlighted here. Counsel and instruction and presence. That is God guides me, God corrects me, God instructs me, God reproves me. Sounds a lot like 2 Timothy 3.16, doesn't it? All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It is God who instructs us and equips us and improves us who encourages us. He's praising God. Well, I bless you because you do these things for me. This is one of the good things. Do you consider it good when God reproves us? In the night my heart instructs me. And I set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand and I shall not be shaken. The result of God's sufficient presence is I will not be moved. You are with me. I am secure. Now I want you to know a very important shift. A very important shift that moves in the psalm. I will not be moved. Notice verse. Eight, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be shaken. I will not be moved in this life. And the remainder of the psalm moves to the next life. In other words, as we will see, I will not be moved in this life. I will not be shaken in this life. And when I die, I will not be shaken there. I will continue to be steadfast because the Lord is with me. Therefore, therefore, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, also my heart is struck me. I set the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also shall dwell secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your holy one see decay. In the realm of the dead, you will not abandon me. In Sheol, the realm of the dead, even there you preserve me. Even there you protect me. Even there you will not let me go. You are my good. You are my inheritance in this life. You keep me. And when this life is done, your goodness does not wane. It does not ebb. It does not cease. It continues on. And I rest and stand secure in your goodness that never ends. And is not stopped by death. And the joy of your presence. I love this friend. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. I love that joy finds its fulfillment in God's eternal presence. That is, the joy of God in the eternal after death, surpasses the joy of earthly pleasures, and they never end. In this life, there is joy. In this life, there is security. And good is found in God's presence. This joy, this security, this goodness does not see, but it finds its fullness when we are eternally with God. You may go into the path of life, and in your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, even in death. Preserve me, even then. One of the guiding principles of the church on the place of how we understand Scripture is that Christ is the point of all the Scripture. Christ is the center of all of Scripture, and we believe that on really good authority, Jesus himself. Whether it's in John 5, where he tells the Pharisees, you seek the Scriptures, don't you know they point to me? Or when he's in Luke 24, where he's with the disciples, and they don't understand, did you know that it was necessary that the Christ would die and rise again? And he explained to them from the Scriptures? So you think, the, the Scriptures, the, the Hebrew Bible testifies that I was going to die and rise again from the dead. And then he shows them from the scriptures. And then later, when they're all gathered together, and he, and he begins to say, don't you know that I'm the center of all the scriptures? And he takes them to Moses, and to the prophets, and to the Psalms, that Christ must die and rise again. So the central, the central interpretive theme of all of the Bible is Christ himself. And so we have to ask, if the Psalms point to Christ, how does the Psalm point to Christ? Well, good question. And it's not too difficult to discover, because the New Testament authors found fulfillment of verse 10 in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For you will not abandon my soul to shield, or let your holy one find seed decay. The New Testament authors found fulfillment of that verse in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here, what we have, in the psalm, we have David is looking beyond the common lot of mankind. The common lot of mankind is this. From dust you were formed, until dust you will return. Genesis 3.19. David's saying, wait a second. 
I'm looking beyond that. I see a wait for Christ who is the first fruit of those who rise from the dead. And this is what Peter can faithfully speak of David as a prophet declaring the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Chap- Acts chapter 2, verse 30. I don't know if I put that up on the board or if, I, if I'm going to read it, but I don't remember. Acts chapter 2, verse 30. This is what Peter says about this verse and about David. I think it's important. Let me go to verse 29. Brothers, this is Peter's Pentecost sermon. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch of David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us here today. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised, and all of us are witnesses. Peter understands David was a prophet when he wrote this. He was prophesying that Christ would rise from the dead, and as a result, all those who are in Christ would rise from the dead as well. Paul picks this up and contends this prophecy was fulfilled in Christ alone. He was exempted. Christ alone was exempted from the corruption of the grave, that he might call his own people into fellowship, and they would participate in the blessing of eternal life. David speaking as a prophet, the New Testament authors, so David speaking as a prophet, pointing forward to the time when Christ would rise from the dead, and as one who is risen from the dead, Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians 15, that if we are in Christ, we rise too. Our common lot as human beings is not from dust you were made to dust you will return. But you also will be given a resurrection body and dwell with Christ forever because he was raised from the dead and he lives forevermore. The passage in Psalms ends with the statement, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And certainly we see Christ in that. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We see that again in Acts chapter 1 where Christ ascends and is seated at the right hand of God the Father and from there he rules as king and secures and preserves his own. We are preserved, we are preserved because Christ is alive and reigning. So when the psalmist cries out, preserve me, preserve me in this life, preserve me when this life ends, we also can rest in the confidence that because Christ has died and has risen and has ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns, we too are secure in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me just conclude with a few points. What you know how the psalm flows, how it moves, it moves from temporal security to eternal security. It moves from temporal preservation to eternal preservation. In other words, God does not just rescue us here and then say, well, death is too big of an obstacle for me, or it is too big of an opponent, it is too strong a force, and maybe I can help you, maybe I can't. But preserve me now, and I can be certain that you will preserve me in the age to come. But again, if you are in Christ, I want to assure you, I want to assure you, if you are in Christ, God can protect you now, and he can preserve you. But even one of these days, all of us will die. And when you do, his preserving power has not ceased. He preserves you then, and you will survive the grave. You should also remember that we are preserved by God for God. The benefit of rescue is God himself. The benefit of being rescued, whether it's temporal or, or eternal preservation, the benefit is the presence of God. I pray that we not be people who simply want God's benefits without God himself. That we be people that desire God. Above all, the benefit. He is the benefit. Therefore, what David looked forward to, we recognize as completed in the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. What David looked forward to and wrote as a prophet, we recognize as a completed task. And it is completed in the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. My final point, and I will end with this, is a reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 35 and 37 through 39. I think this sums it up. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our Father, have mercy upon us this day. Help us to trust you in this life. Help us to love your desire your presence and be assured that when this life ends, your presence continues.